good morning, everyone. I'm Robert Kelly, one of the pastors here. If we haven't yet met, so glad uh, that you are here. A special welcome to uh, all of our uh, guests here. We know every week we have guests here at the church who are coming out and checking things out. And if you have any questions at all about the church, who we are, what we do, why we do what we do, don't hesitate to uh, come and uh, talk to us afterwards. That would be, we'd love to uh, get to know you a little bit better. Uh, But before uh, we do that, we want to get a little bit into God's word and talk about how, you know, kind of continue the topic that we've been focused on here for the summer. Of course, we've been working through kind of our mission, vision, values as a church um, all summer. And we are coming up to the end of that series because it is the end of summer. In fact, as I understand it, it really is over. Like, isn't today really the last day of summer? I mean, really? I mean, think about it. I mean, come on. Let's be realistic, right? I mean, what are you going to do? You, okay, so maybe you're saying, no, 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 it has to be Labor Day because we can't go with, with like the fall equinox, right? Because that's not really summer by the middle of September. Right? So what we, we really have to think of in terms of what? What are you going to do, Labor Day? It's 70 degrees this week. It's over. <laughs> You might get one more 80-degree day. So as far as I'm concerned, this is pretty much the last day of summer. I know. I know. This is exactly how it feels because, of course, there are house projects that remain in tatters that I never quite got to this summer. There are, of course, adventures with the family that are going to go unexplored. There's a giant pile of books that I did not even begin to think about reading over the summer. I wanted to read them all. And you don't even want to talk about hobbies, you know, because the summers, you know, you kind of do your hobbies, right? So I'm not kidding. I probably have logged less than, uh, this is is heartbreaking, less than 100 miles on my motorcycle this summer. That's ridiculous. I should be doing like 5,000 miles in the course, 100 miles. I took it here like twice. Like I haven't gone out at all. And it's over. Like the summer is, it's just... Today is the last day, which makes many of you think, what am I doing here? I I have stuff I need to go do. (laughs) i got to get out. Um, And of course, I'm sure you didn't come here this morning to hear me whine, because you have your own list of things that you did not get to accomplish this summer. And with so many competing priorities, I think it's difficult for us to allocate our time resources in the way that we want. There's that time crunch going on. But time, of course, really is the new currency. I mean, isn't it? Isn't that how it feels? Like, I mean, of course, if I said, hey, you guys want some more money, who would say no? I mean, like, you'd, everyone's like, of course I'd like some more money. But, and, but that, as a currency, money seems to be less indicative of what we really value than how we spend our time. Time seems to be really a way to gauge, to measure what's important to us, what's really in the core of our hearts. You could think through it. Let's start with the guy who works 70 hours a week, right? So maybe, maybe that's you. And maybe, you know, you've been doing that for, you know, a whole lot of years. Why? Maybe it's the money. Maybe that's it. But what is it that's really going on? Maybe what's happening is you value achievement or the power that comes with your work or the respect that comes. 
Maybe that's what's motivating you. You see, just because you're doing 70 hours, you're doing it and you're doing it and you're doing it, but you might all be doing it for different reasons. There might be a different set of values going on. Maybe you're still trying to win, you know, your father or your mother's approval. So you work really hard because that's the only way you're going to hear them say, you're doing great, kid. They might not even be around anymore. And you're still feeling that push, that drive. Maybe it's that. Maybe your boss is just a tyrant and he's going to fire you if you work any less. And you don't want to lose your job because you value security and stability and retirement. The values drive how we spend our time. Maybe you spend a lot of time hanging out with your extended family or, you know, or hanging out with your friends. Well, you value those relationships, and so you invest in them more heavily, more fully. Maybe you spend a lot of time fixing up your house. What motivates that? Do you, is it just that you really care what the neighbors think? Maybe you want to be able to impress them in some way. Maybe you just like everything in order. Maybe you're a control freak and you're like, you know what, if this is out of order, then I'm just not happy in the world. So that's your value, you know, some sort of, you know, you know boxes that you have that need to have everything in, in where they go. Maybe that's the reason you're, you, you invest that kind, of a time, that kind of time. Or maybe you actually are just trying to please your spouse because he or she wants the house or the yard in a certain way and so you spend your time doing it because your value is to please them. Or maybe if you don't do it, they're going to nag you to death. And you value not being nagged. And so you're like, I'm going to do it just so I don't have to hear that. You know, it can, it's a value. But it makes, it forms the way we spend our time. Maybe some of you spend a couple hours a day sitting in front of the TV. Why? Well, I really love that show. But what are, you, what are you valuing in it? You're valuing leisure or you're, you, you want to decompress or, you know, you're, you, you, you're, you're you know, trying to empty your mind of, of other things. Who knows what it is? But you see, you, everything you do is a decision rooted in your values. And as you would expect, God's perspective on the best use of our time is different than what we would often think. Because the Bible makes it plain that as Christians, we are servants of the world. We're servants of the world. You guys remember the the circles diagram? We are crushing the creativity thing right now because this is called the circles diagram. So very creative, very insightful. But anyway, this is the circles diagram we've sort of been thinking through, working through all over this summer, helping us see kind of the strategies that we've been working each step of the way. And so you're from the community, but we want to pull people into the crowd. And some of the people who are here this morning are part of the crowd, but some of you have moved into the congregation. And our goal is to kind of move people into a place where they can come to the congregation and worship God, where they can learn to love God as we gather together as his people. Then we talk about how to move people from the congregation into the connected, because it isn't enough to be a Christian on a Sunday morning, but instead to to build a community, a spiritual family that happens the rest of the week. And so we want to get you connected to other Christ followers where you can learn to love people. But of course, we want even more than that, because now you're going to love God and you're going to love people, but we want you to grow in Christ. And so Trevor started to outline how we're trying to move people from the congregation into the committed as well to make certain that we're all growing in Christ until the very end. So we have a whole long plan and steps for each person, no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, to help you grow in Christ. 
And this morning we're talking about moving people from the congregation into the commissioned because each and every one of us are commissioned by Christ, which means you are to take your God-given gifts, your natural born abilities, your creativity and your brilliance, your, your physical capabilities, and you are to use these God-given gifts to serve the world. You've been commissioned by Christ to do that. So open up, if you would, in a Bible to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be starting in verse 1. And as you open up there, it's helpful for us to kind of see how the book of Romans handles this, this idea of God's love. So there are eight occurrences of, just listen while you're opening up, there are eight occurrences of the word love in the book of Romans, agape love. It's a Greek word, agape, for this idea of love, right? And so the, the first 11 chapters of Romans, Romans 1 through 11, four of those occurrences show up. And of those four, all of them are referencing God's love for us. So for the first 11 chapters, Paul is building an argument that says, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. You're a sinner, God still loves you. God loves you, God loves you. He's repeating it over and over again for the first 11 chapters. Then a shift takes place. In Romans 12 to 15, he, talks, he uses the same word agape four times, but in every occurrence, it's about our love for other people. So everything we're about to say this morning has to be rooted in this idea that the first 11 chapters are about God's love for us because it's his love for us that enables us to love people fully, authentically, and in the way that Christ is calling us to. So everything else has to be the basis of everything we, have to, we are about to say is actually God's love for us manifesting itself in our love for other people, okay? So Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1, we see that we have to surrender to God. He says, therefore I urge you, Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So you get this idea, right, of what he means when he says surrender to God? He's saying, you're taking your body as a living sacrifice. Now, that language, of course, is right out of the way the Jewish people used to worship. And so you remember they'd have a Thanksgiving offering or they'd have an offering about sin and they would take an animal to the temple. The animal would be killed on the altar. Blood would be poured out and it would be sacrificed to God, wholly and completely. The whole animal was now consecrated to God, given to him. And so when he talks about being a sacrifice, that's the background. He's saying God wants your life fully and completely laid down on his altar. Now, fortunately, he qualifies it, right, with living. <laughs> that's nice. Because uh, it's a living sacrifice. It's not a dead sacrifice that he wants anymore. The idea of a fully consecrated life being given to him, he can only do that, you know, he can only take it fully and completely by killing the animal. But he's saying that was a type. It was a picture. It was a metaphor for what he really wants, which is a life laid down on his altar. Your life. A living sacrifice. Now, what's interesting about that is he actually says to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And I like that because the normal way that we talk about becoming a Christian is to accept Christ into your heart, right? 
We tell people, you know, you got to accept Jesus into your life. You have to accept him into your heart. And that's great language. It's true. It's valid. It's useful. But this is a little different from that. He's saying, offer your bodies. There's something physical here. There's something tangible here that he's trying to develop for us. And I think this pushes us a little bit deeper into understanding this idea of, of how we live as a sacrifice. See, it's not that he's simply saying, accept him into this sort of mystical place of your heart and believe it within the confines of your skull, in your brain. I don't think he's just saying, think about it and believe it, trust it. I think he's going beyond that. This is how John Stott phrases it. He says, no worship is pleasing to God, which is purely inward, abstract, and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. You see, there's a physicality of our faith. It's with these hands and these feet and this mouth that we do the ministry. And it's with your bodies that you will actually be a sacrifice pleasing to God. If a person thinks that they can just be pleasing to God by sort of sitting back in their home with him in their hearts, they're missing out what it means to be a sacrifice because there's only one way to truly love the world and it's to go and do it with all that you are. See, it's with our body that's made alive with, through our soul and led by our spirit that we are to love other people. That's the way we're ultimately going to serve the world, which means your body is not your own, which means your schedule is not your own. It's his to do with as he pleases. If you've offered yourself before him on the altar, if you're a sacrifice, he gets to do whatever he wants with it. So are you there yet in your thinking about how you are to serve the heart and the attitude and the physicality of how we're to serve in his kingdom? It's the fullness of who you are laid out before him. It means you offer up your schedule to him. It means every day you get to say it out before him and say, God, how do you want to use me today? What am I supposed to be doing? What am I not supposed to be doing? What are the things that make you smile upon my life. How do you serve him? He gives us a little bit of an insight by telling us to serve with humility. Look at verse three. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, you guys know the New Testament was written in Greek, and so sometimes you're translating a language from one to another into English, and things get a little bit difficult on a few occasions. Usually, it's very, very straightforward, but every once in a while, because of just grammatical structures and whatnot, you can go in one of two different directions with a particular interpretation. And every once in a while, just like there's not many of them, but I'd like to just point a few of them out. This happens to be one of them. So this is the NIV. Now, let's go back to just the NIV. So it says, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, when you read that, you could, you could hear it as if he's saying, God has given to each one of you 
a certain measure of faith, right? And so you're to critique, think of yourself along the lines of how much faith God has given you. Does that make sense? Right, that's kind of the one bent. And so, you know, Jamie, you have one type of faith, and so you should think of yourself along with how much faith God has given you to think. And, you know, Eddie, you have another type of faith, and you should think about it. And that's how a lot of people understand this. But not all scholars agree with that, and some of the translations show us another way that this could be taken grammatically. So the New Living Translation says... Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Now, this one is more ambiguous, and I think it more reflects the ambiguity in the original text. So when he's saying, you measure yourselves by the faith God has given us, is he talking about the faith God has given to you? The faith he's given to Barbara? Or is he talking about the faith that he's given to all of you. Many of the scholars that I've been reading this week, my understanding of this as well, lean in the latter direction. That he's not saying judge yourself by how much little faith or great faith you think you have, because now you just get to shift the blame back to God. You get to say, well, I would have thought more of myself if you had given me more faith, right? And this is what ends up happening. Like, well, I guess I have little faith. That's all I can really do. So I only have to serve it this much because you know, that's all I have is a tiny little faith, which is still your fault, right? And so, but of course, I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think he's saying measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given, not your particular faith, but by the faith, the Christian faith, because that's our all in all. That's the promises that we've been given in the scriptures is that we can now and only have to measure ourselves by the faith. And why this helps us is because now we don't have to actually worry about what anybody else is doing. There are no more comparisons within the Christian community. We don't need to look around and be jealous of another person's gift or how God is using them or not using me in comparison to them. That isn't what you're accountable for. You're going to be accountable for how you have laid your life down on the altar as the faith calls us to. And you're going to be accountable for the unique gift that God has given you to use. That's how you measure yourself, which now produces in us a level of both humility, because we look to the scriptures and we say, Lord, there's just so much we want and so much you're calling us to. Now we can approach him with humility and say, Lord, we need your strength and we need your power to do all that you've called us to. And it removes jealousy and envy. And it also means that we don't have to judge ourselves by the world's standards because you're being judged by the faith. So it doesn't matter what the world says. And it doesn't matter if the world says you're not accomplishing enough, you're not achieving what you're supposed to, you're not making the kind of money, you're not able to put your kids in those schools and put them through college. You're not, you know, you're not judging yourself by the world standards. You're measuring yourself by the standards of the faith. This is a wildly liberating and important concept for us because we don't have to compare ourselves to others, not in the world and not in the church. Comparisons are irrelevant. Self-assessment is still essential. But now we assess ourselves based upon God's word, his love for us, his call upon our lives. 
And we can't be arrogant when we do that. So we approach it now with humility. And the better you know yourself, the better you will be able to lay your life fully and completely on the altar. And this matters because every single gift matters to God. Every single gift. Look at verse 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So what's he saying here? Well, each person has their own unique gift. And when you operate within that gift, God smiles on your life. But we don't see it like this because we forget. What we see are the visible gifts. You know, we see, and it's, they love the body metaphor. You guys remember toys like this? This is like a kid's toy, right? And so you get skeleton man. Some of you played with skeleton man like this. Like you're like, this is creepy, but uh, he's smiling at least, which I don't think is possible on a skull. But so he's smiling. And what you do is they, they give you different parts. And so you get to put like, you know, the circulatory system on this. And you get to teach a kid through this simple toy that there's something behind. There's not just a skeletal system, but there's something behind the skin. There's something behind what you see. And the circulatory system, pretty important. Pretty, pretty important, right? That's why it gets its own, you know, its own panels, right? And then, then they go on, they're like, but it's not just the circulatory system that matters. There's the muscular system as well, which, you know, for whatever reason does look even creepier to me. But uh, the muscular system matters, right? Like without the muscular system, what would you really be able to accomplish? He's got like eight abs, which is ridiculous. Because like, I mean, I do have a six pack, but it's, it's well protected. So, you know, like just try to like, you know, just try to keep it safe. Because you never know when you need to call on it. You want to keep it safe. So this guy's got like eight or 10 or that's something else. Or, you know, then he's got, of course, his whole full set of organs. And, you know, you can say, oh, you know, I can live without some of these. You know, you got the brains and the lungs and all of this. But what you only see, of course, is that, you know, the final one that they, obviously kids like to miss and match them, but we're not doing that for today. And so, you know, this is what they see. But, of course, a child's toy tells you that what you see is hardly the most important. Which system do you want to give up? You want to give up your circulatory system or you want to give up your organs? It's idiotic, right? You're like, I sort of need them all to function. Why do you think Paul uses this kind of language throughout the scriptures? Why do they like the imagery of the body? Because there are so many parts of it that we don't value because we don't see them, but they're unbelievably important. They're unbelievably important. Every single gift matters to God. And sure, you can function when one of your systems isn't quite right. Who would want to? Yeah, you can lose a couple of body parts, but who? you don't want to function that way. Yes, churches can function without a few people doing something they're supposed to be doing, how they're supposed to be made, and what you, know, you can do. You can have a couple muscles blow out. My uncle, he had his eye taken out in a bar fight. And so it was like with a pool stick and, you know, he had, eye, he had a glass eye and it was like really unnerving because it wasn't quite a good glass eye. I think it was like the cheap version of it or something. And so it was kind of like a little like off. But, uh, you know, like, you know, you could tell he lived. He survived without two eyes. You can do that. Who'd want to? Who would want to do that? You, every system matters. Every gift matters. Every part matters. F.F. Bruce, a brilliant New Testament scholar, he once said, it's diversity, not uniformity, is the mark of God's handiwork. 
It is so in nature, it is so in grace too, and nowhere more so than in the Christian community. Here are many men and women with the most diverse kinds of parentage, environment, temperament, and capacity. Not only so, but since they became Christians, they have been endowed by God with a great variety of spiritual gifts as well. Because of and by means of that diversity, all can cooperate for the good of the whole. So what are your gifts? What is the uniqueness that God has made in you? Maybe you're a teacher or you're an organizer or you're a creative or a musician. Maybe you work with your hands or you work mostly in your mind. Maybe you're a writer or a designer or you're a giver. You like to give financially or in, in other ways. Maybe you're an evangelist who loves to share the story of Christ's love. Or maybe you're just filled with mercy and compassion. Whenever you see somebody hurting, what are your unique gifts and how have you deployed them in the kingdom work? We have to pursue these gifts. Look at, this is, I'm only gonna look at one of them because I can't go through all the gifts here this morning, but look at verse 13. He says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. One of the reasons this one jumped out at me is because the word here for practice, it's a very strong word. Some would interpret it as pursue hospitality, which is a funny way of thinking about it. You could show hospitality, but how do you pursue hospitality, right? Like somebody comes over to your house, you can open up your home, but how do you pursue it? Origen, an ancient writer, he said, we are not just to receive the stranger when he comes to us, but actually to inquire after and look carefully for strangers to pursue them and search them out everywhere, lest perchance somewhere they may sit in the streets or lie without a roof. You see how he's understanding this word, why it's such a strong idea. It's not just because he's not saying, chill out, wait for somebody in need to come find you. He's saying, no, 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 no. Christian, you go out and use your gift of hospitality out there where people need it because they're sitting in the street. They don't have a roof over their heads. And this applies to all of the gifts. I don't think we're supposed to sit back waiting for some opportunity for these things, for our gifts to be used. Use your gifts. Get out there and find the people who need it. You don't just wait for the need to come to you. As followers of Christ, we go out into the highways and we go out into the byways and we find the need and we meet it there. So where will you serve? What need will you pursue so that you can utilize your gifts to meet that need and to show God's love? When you came in on your seat, there was a count me in card. That's what we call it. It's a count me in card. And you can think of these opportunities as ways to begin exploring what your unique gifting might be. And you can think even in terms of all the different opportunities we have here at Beacon, and some will find their opportunities at Beacon, and others will find their opportunities outside of Beacon. But this is a way to help you start thinking about where it is that you want to serve and ask yourself a few different kinds of questions. You could say, all right, you know what? I want to help out. I want to be a part of what God is doing here at Beacon. Great. Next step for you is to figure out what you want to do, meaning do you want to help people learn to love God? You say, yes, that's what I would love. Well, we here practice 
We bring everybody together. We bring the congregation together. And we talk about loving God in the midst of our corporate worship. So when a person comes to the church, the first thing they see are greeters and ushers and a cafe crew that all work hard to make, create a welcoming and warm environment for people to actually see their, their, the, to prepare their hearts to enter into worship. Then they come in here and they sit and they begin to experience what worship is like. We sing songs and we, we go to the Lord's table and maybe that's you. Maybe you want to help out with the media team or you want to help set up communion or be in the band or sing and you want to use, because you want to help lead people into the presence of God to help them learn to love God. Maybe that's your passion. Great. Then let us know that. Or maybe you say, you know what, that's all great. Love that stuff. But I really want to help people learn to love each other. I want to help create Christian community. That's what I want. Great. Our small groups are designed for that. So maybe you want to be a host or you want to be a teacher. You want to be one of the connect people that kind of it's a glue that holds these groups together. You know, we're trying to, you know, start five new groups this year. Like this is a ridiculous number because we don't have the hosts. We don't have the teachers. We don't have the connect people. But we don't have, we don't have any, but we want to create these opportunities because we want to give everybody at Beacon a chance to participate in genuine Christian community, to be connected to each other in that way. Great. So maybe that's you. Maybe you hear that and that starts to stir your heart a little bit. You're like, you know what? Maybe God has made me that way. Maybe I can start exercising my gifts in that way. Maybe you want to be part of that shepherding ministry that we're going to be starting through the small groups that's going to help push them into a more missional direction to care for people who aren't yet connected and try to fold them in. Or maybe last week you're listening to Trevor talk about helping people grow in Christ and you say, that's what I love. Whatever the disciple-making plan is, count me in. That's what I want to do. I want to help either, you know, I want to help non-Christians who are exploring Christianity in that new class. You know, I want to help uh, get a person who's, you know, a, a brand new believer. I want to work with them for a few months and get them established in the faith. Or I want to help set up for the discipleship classes that are going to be happening every month. Or you might say, you know what, I want to... I want to be a disciple maker. I want to work with a few people for a long period of time, 18, 24 months, and I want to help, help shape them and, and bring them into the fullness of Christian maturity so that they're ready and able to go out and make disciples on their own. Maybe that's you. That would be fantastic. Maybe you're saying, you know, I'd, maybe it's a more general way for me. You know, we're talking about how to, you know, manage our building and grounds and our, you know, do all of our property stuff. Or maybe with the back office. We have a whole group of people that meet every week here at the church to make everything else happen. They run all the different details. They manage all the details. They do inventory and letters and all of that. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're a behind-the-scenes person and you're saying, I want to help make sure all of the other ministries are resourced in those important ways. Count me in on that. Let me figure out how I can help out. Or maybe it's the compassion or the care team or the outreach team. You see, there's lots of opportunities. Now, you might tell me, it's actually, those all sound great, but what really encourages me is the next generation. That's what I just, I love. Fantastic. Because for us, the next generation, you know what we're doing with the next generation? We're teaching them to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. It's the same mission. It's the same purpose. It's just with different age groups. And maybe that's you. Maybe you want to help students or you want to help kids. Then talk to us about our next-gen ministries and see how you can get plugged in. There are so many opportunities to serve the world at Beacon, through Beacon, and, of course, beyond Beacon. And we want to help you and participate with it. And so for some of you, one of your next steps would be an easy thing to say, you know what? 
Let me mark that, and you can actually go ahead and mark that now, and you can just say, you know what, you're not, you're not signing up for life here, okay? I know some of you don't believe me when I say that, because some of you marked a card like this, and you've been serving ever since. But that's only because you found your joy. Um, so you can go ahead and mark it, and just, you know, let us, and we'll just talk to you about it and see what you might be interested in. And then what I'm going to do is as soon as you're done with that, and if you're already serving, you don't need to like tell us you're a greeter. I've been a greeter for 12 years. Um, you don't need to say that, but you can if you need to check a box. Um, but anyway, you can just go ahead and after you do that, go ahead and pull them into the aisles. Just pass them off to the aisles. The ushers are going to come down, and they're going to uh, go ahead and collect these. So uh, you guys can just mark any of those that seem appropriate to you or you want to learn more information about, and the ushers will, will go ahead and receive them. But, but what we're really talking about here even more so than exploring a couple of these options. What we're really talking about here is learning what it means to surrender the whole of yourself in sacrificial worship to God. Worship is so much more than us coming together and singing songs. It's about sacrificing the whole of your life and, and laying it on the altar, taking your body and, and offering it up to him so that he might use it to his glory and the expansion of his kingdom. And as you recognize your very body is going to be offered as a sacrifice to God, then you, got, you start to see how it is that your feet are going to be able to go to the people who are in need or your lips are going to be encouraging the lost with truth or your hearts are going to bring Christ's compassion to the people who are hurting and your, your arms are going to, they're going to hold the hurting and the lonely, and your legs are going to lift the burden of the people who have been crushed by the weight of the world, and your ears are going to listen to the stories of people who are far from God as you try to lead them into a, into a vibrant relationship with him. Your eyes are going to see the needs that your feet will rush to meet. You see, you're, the whole of yourselves is being commissioned by God to serve the world. You can imagine what it would be like if every single person at Beacon committed themselves to serving the world using our God-given gifts. What an impact we would make for the kingdom. A whole group, a whole Christian community committed to serving the world in sacrificial ways. It would be amazing. I'm going to invite Tiffany up to lead us in worship. And as she comes up, I'm going to just, uh, just let me pray for all of us. Lord, I'm just asking that uh, you would stir up our hearts. Lord, sometimes we don't even know where to start. We don't even know what we're interested in anymore. We, we've spent so long not uh, thinking about you or your ways or your plan for us, and we're just so busy with so many other things, Lord, that, Father, it's easy for us, easy for us to just lose sight of how you've uniquely gifted us and how you've made us and what the, the passion that you've put in our hearts. I'm praying, Lord, what you would do is you would stir up a discontent in each person's heart, a holy discontent that we would be troubled by the things in this world that trouble you. Father, that that holy discontent, it would grip us, it would grab our hearts, it would seize us so that, Father, we would begin to experience your heart for the hurting, your heart for people who are far from you, your heart for the under-resourced and the less privileged, your heart for the broken families.
your heart for kids and youth that are straying and struggling. We want to experience that, Lord. We want to feel it because in those moments of holy discontent, we begin to get a sense of what you have for us. And I pray that each person here, Lord, would find their discontent so that they might know where they're to throw their time, energy, resources, their unique gifts for the furtherance of your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.